0: Greetings, everybody. It gives me absolutely great pleasure to welcome Dr. Isidou Touré to this Africa Talks Gender Institute public lecture. I'm grateful to all our sponsors, including the LSE Annual Fund, and would particularly like to thank James Dealey. I don't know whether he... Hello, James. Um, uh, ...in the Gender Institute for having helped to organise the event and to arrange Isidou's passage from the Gambia, which is no mean feat, actually. Um, And thanks not only to James, but also to Hazel Johnson, who's sitting next to James up there, who's Gender Institute Manager, um, for having uh, set up the reception afterwards. The subject of tonight's talk, female genital mutilation, or FGM, which some people refer to by the more neutral term uh, female circumcision, or FGC, female genital cutting, taking place right here in London, could not be more timely. As you're no doubt aware from recent press coverage, girls in Britain are more at risk of this practice than anywhere else in Europe. David Cameron has pledged £35 million to eradicate FGM within a generation, which is the biggest ever international investment aimed at tackling it. In the immediate term, our International Development Minister, Lynn Featherston, who happens to be my local MP in Haringey, and I did invite tonight but I can't see her in the audience yet, um, intends to use this money to reduce FGM by 30% in five years. This is critical given that over 65,000 women living in the UK have already undergone cutting and an estimated further 30,000 girls are at risk. A large number of girls, of these girls that are of Gambian origin who are forced into the procedure when they go on holiday to visit relatives. The Gambian situation came to light a couple of weeks ago when one 11-year-old girl wrote to the charity Equality Now, who's actually one of uh, ISATU's partners, pleading help when she made the traumatic discovery that this had happened to her older sister. In this regard, it could not be more apposite to have Dr. Touré with us tonight, which brings me to my dedicated introduction to our very distinguished guest, who, incidentally, has a long association with the UK. ISATU studied for her PhD under uh, Professor Melissa Leach at the University of Sussex and two of Isatou's daughter Naima and Sally also live here in the UK and we had the pleasure last night of um, celebrating Isatou's birthday uh, with Sally and my husband Chris who's um, manically taking photographs down there Um, now Sally is in the final year of her degree in Health and Social Policy at the London Metropolitan University and we're very pleased to have you here Sally I apologise if my introduction is a little lengthier Uh, than usual but I promise not to take too much time but as I hope you will appreciate it's hard to do justice to Isatu in only a few words especially as I've known Isatou personally um, uh, and had the great pleasure of working with her for nearly uh, a decade now ISATU is founder and executive director of the Gambia Committee on Traditional Practices Affecting the Health of Women and Children, known for short as GAMCO-TRAP. And I'm very grateful for that acronym, uh, uh, ISATU, because it's quite a a lengthy uh, title to an NGO. This is an NGO which has campaigned tirelessly for women's and girls' rights since the 1980s and which has been a leader in the struggle to eliminate FGM. This has not exactly been an easy challenge, an and ISATU and her small coterie of very loyal staff, including Ami Bojang Sisaho and Omar Dibba, who I know very well, have encountered several difficulties along the way. Thanks to their incredible work in various regions of the Gambia, several communities have come to support the rights of the girl child and to abandon the practice of female circumcision. I myself had the privilege of attending the third major dropping of the knife ceremony at Jarrah Summer, the Lower, Lower River region, in July 2011, at which 20 circumcisers laid down their knives in a spectacular show of community solidarity and celebration. This event would have been unthinkable 20 or 30 years ago in a country where around three-quarters of women have undergone type 1 or type 2 circumcision. We have to remember that there is no law forbidding FGM in the Gambia, but ISATU has recently been involved in drawing up a draft bill for the prohibition of FGM, which is currently with the Office of the Vice President. Extra impetus should be added to this process by the fact that in December 2012, the UN General Assembly accepted a resolution on the elimination of FGM. If the Gambian bill becomes law, and let's hope it does... That one of IIS2's and GamcoTrap's major missions will be realised and, with luck, usher in an unprecedented era of respect for the rights of women and girls in the Gambia. On a more personal note, I first met IIS2 in 2004, shortly after embarking on my own research in the Gambia with my colleague, Dr. Gareth Jones... Um, and then subsequently, on my own account on gender generation and poverty, and later with Alice Evans on gender and sexuality I 's energy, bravery, compassion and integrity impressed me from the very start, and I have never failed to be struck by her sustained commitment to tackling the very deeply embedded gender inequalities facing women in the Gambia. This applies not only to her amazing work at the grassroots but also at the highest levels of governance, including as member of the technical advisory body for the policy for the advancement of Gambian women. And ISA2's endeavours have not been confined to the Gambia alone, but extend across the African uh, region in general, not to mention globally. To name but a few of her many activities, ISATU has been a member of the Gender Action Team for the Ratification of the African Protocol on Women's Rights and she is Secretary General of the Inter-African Committee. This is a network of 28 countries working on FGM and gender-based violence and despite all this activity Isatu still manages to write and publish prolifically for varied audiences and I myself have enjoyed the honour of being her co-author on two occasions now one of our first joint ventures was to craft um, an overview of women and gender in the first ever post-independence collection of essays on the Gambia by Gambians and Gambianist scholars Isatou just pass me that book (laughs) This is even bigger than the International Handbook of Gender and Poverty, which I compiled a couple of years ago. It is a mammoth uh, editorial feat, and I'm very happy to say that the editorial work for this volume was carried out by Abdullai Sen, Ibrahima Sisi, and Ibrahima Sal. And uh, we've got Abdulai Sen in the audience, and has Ibrahima arrived yet, or is he on Gambian Maybe time? Very pleased to see you. Um, and uh, uh, basically uh, we are very lucky to have Professor Sen and Ibrahim uh, Cissé in our midst and so this is going to be a, an extra special encounter, I think, for all of us because um, many Gambians are diasporic and we all know each other by respita- reputation and for many of us this is the first time we've actually been able to encounter each other in person. So it's a very emotional uh, uh, situation. Before I hand over to Waisatu, I should also say that Abdullahi and Abrahma joined with me and others, including Dr. David Perfect. David, are you here? Not yet, but he will probably be coming again on Gambian Maybe Time. Um, uh, but, but basically, we supported Gamko Trap's nomination for the 2013 Thomas J. Dodd Prize in International Justice and Human Rights. While this is currently in the process of deliberation, already ISA-2's achievements and services to others have led to several other awards. One is the U.S. Ambassadorial Prize for International Women of Courage. Another is Gambian of the Year 2008. This is a very rare honor, which, is a, which only one other female national has earned to date. And third, Isatu was also voted winner of the 100 Heroines of the World on Human Rights by the Rochester Women's Health Project at Rutgers University. I think you will gather why ISATU has been worthy of these accolades as she now addresses us on the politics of female genital mutilation, where external and locally led initiatives are bringing positive change. Isatu will speak for about 45 to 50 minutes, leaving time for questions, and after this we will have further opportunities to for discussion at our Gender Institute reception, which is on the fifth floor of Columbia House on the Old and you just keep bearing left out of this building, and it's the first floor, oh, the first floor, sorry, first door past the Garrick, and just follow the convoy, and you'll get there. I, said to you, I'm so happy that we've got you to the LSE at long last, and have gracious of pleasure handing you the floor. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Professor Chant. Uh, good evening, everybody. I am really honored and privileged to be here and be given the opportunity to address this August Garden today on a topic that is very dear to my heart and also to extend my appreciation of my Gambian colleagues, brothers and sisters, and others from the diaspora who took it upon themselves to be present today on this uh, occasion. I don't know where to start, but let me just explain the methodology of my presentation. And that is, uh, I have two uh, presentations to make within 50 minutes, part of which is in the realm of academia. And another part is trying to um, sort of validate the grassroots knowledge in a very scientific way by trying to document it. So I will try to build both both of them in dealing with issues that are culturally specific and need some cultural strategies which are specific to, uh, to the context. So um, I just want to say thank you again once more. My topic today is the politics of female genital mutilation where external and locally-led initiatives are bringing positive change. Uh, as he rightly said, FGM is a very topical issue, an issue that has actually um, garnered a lot of discussions either supporting or pro or feeling that we should not even talk about it because it deals with the personal very political, very sensitive and it happens in an area where if I don't reveal myself or someone does not reveal you never know, so why do we have to make it a public issue but I just want to tell this August gathering that FGM is high on the development agenda throughout the world, and rightly so it should be. It is a development issue because it transcends the African continent. It's not only an African issue. It's everybody's issue because of cross-racial marriages, migration, immigration, and so many other factors that influence the interaction between people coming from different boundaries, meeting each other. So I want to dissociate it Specifically from Africa, but it's a, an African problem, and we have to. Everybody has to uh, engage. This is why I am there. I am engaged. Uh, studies have revealed that FGM is a deep-rooted practice in many parts of Africa and the Middle East, and is shrouded in this in secrecy. It is increasingly found among immigrant populations in the United Kingdom, the rest of Europe, as well as in the United States. And uh, uh, if you refer to uh, for Dokino's paper in 2007 and other recently made studies, you can, you can see evidence of FGM in the, U- in the UK. Uh, we have constantly been called or emailed to give evidence of the situation in the Gambia because one girl or another has been circumcised or will be circumcised, and we've done quite a more of them, and the statistics are there. I also want to raise the issue of FGM from the point of view of... Uh, culture, the issue of culture. You will find that when you talk about FGM, yes, it's a sociocultural practice, but a culture that is not, in my opinion, what it is for women. It is a culture that is really, really bad for women, a culture that also affects women and is shrouded in the control of female sexuality. You will find that uh, some authors would want to trivialize the practice by saying that we don't have to interfere. I don't think that is fair to development. We should interfere in anything that is wrong. Just like we're talking about mass killings, weapons of mass destruction are being discussed by everybody. So the issue of female genital mutilation should be an issue that we should not associate ourselves from. And I just want to refer to one of the writers, uh, referring to Geraldine Finn, writing on women, fantasy and popular cultures. She warned of the pitfall of respect for other cultures prescriptions which tend to collapse every kind of practice into a neutral category as if there were no morally significant difference between clitoridectomy and face painting, which are two different things. I think when I come to show you the reality on the ground, you will see. So for me, I feel that These internal critics of FDM can be invalidated under the priesthoods as deviants. We may be seen as deviants by talking about our culture and uh, expressing what it is supposed to be. I think we have to talk about things. We have to talk about issues if we want to effect change and bring the, the issue on the development platform. So it's a question of others seeing it as pointing it there without wanting to address it. And most of the time, female sexuality issues are within that realm. Uh, external criticism is even more easily dismissed, but the practice of FGM is not limited to people in Africa or third world countries alone. As I have said earlier, we also know that the extent of the practice is very wide. According to the WHO estimation, between 100 and 140 million girls and women worldwide have been subjected to one form of FGM or another. And they live in different parts of the world, in Africa, Middle East, and Asia. But most, however, live in 28 African countries, of which I am the, Inter, I'm the Secretary General of the Inter-Africa Committee. In most of those countries, it ranges between 20% to 90%, so it's very high. And uh, it has been uh, one of the concerns for Africa, and as a result, as women's rights activists and, uh, and rights defenders, we thought it's an area that should be a priority for Africa. Estimates based on the most recent data indicate that 91.5 million girls and women in Africa above the age of nine are currently living with the consequences of uh, FGM. And it is estimated that 3 million girls in Africa are at risk of being mutilated every year. So you see the, uh, the, the dangerous trends it is taking. In the Gambia, FDM is performed in 76.3% of the female population. That is the MIG study. That's the multiple indicator cluster survey study in 2006. I believe if we do another survey, there would be a great reduction because we've done quite comprehensive work there and people are listening about nights are being abandoned. Therefore, we need studies to confirm the extent or the, uh, the prevalence. And the main ethnic groups involved in the practice are Mandinka, Jahanka, Sarahule, Akumarabu, Fula, and Jola. My study or my research showed that these are the main study, uh, ethnic groups that do it. Other ethnic groups that do not practice FGM, when they are married to men or within the families of me, uh, that, that are practicing FGM, stand a high risk of getting their children circumcised, particularly if, you are, if, the, if your husband is from the ethnic, practicing ethnic group. So that does not protect those children at all. In my view, one cannot address the practice of uh, of FGM without examining why FGM. Well, there are various reasons given, and it is important to understand those reasons than to just, let's say, condemn or to accept. If you understand the reasons, then you'll be able to know what type of strategy you will be able to effect to uh, bring in these changes. Well, I'm not going into what is FGM. You will see it there. So I'm going to the why, reasons for FGM. There are various reasons why FDM is practiced in our communities. They range from preserving one's identity within the culture and a sense of belonging to a cult, which becomes a social norm in the community. It is also about eligibility of women and girls to marry within the family kinship. People in such cultures believe that uncircumcised women bring ill omen to the kin and therefore must be caught to sacrifice blood for protection. It is also believed that women, when a woman is not circumcised, men will not be able to satiate her sexual urge, and therefore the clitoris must be removed to make her dysfunctional and to control the sexual desire. This is all about female sexuality. It is also a general belief that when the woman is not circumcised, when giving birth, and the clitoris touches the head of the baby, the baby will die. This way, women's realization of pleasure and response to sex are co resulting to control of sexuality women and women's practice is hereby defined and produced as cultures other as part of nature to which culture is opposed and must be tamed or controlled. This is also coming from Geraldine in her analysis. Men are thus the agents of subject of FGM and women are uh, are objects the raw, the raw material of an essentially male cultural practice is my emphasis. You will find that Working in this field for the last 25 to 30 years, I have come to discover that it's all about control of female sexuality. There is no basis. It's all about patriarchal control, whether the woman should have a clitoris or not, or whether the woman should even have sexual pleasure. These are all things that when you listen to the language and the songs that are being uh, expounded during the training and during the healing process, it's all about that. And I'm now trying to develop an encyclopedia of songs which are all about resistance, and yet we said it's about uh, culture. Several reasons are given by practicing communities, however. If one takes a critical look at it, it's about control of female sexuality. Uh, Different cultures have different ways of defining their women. I think if you remember in uh, in the early centuries, the Chinese food binding was another way of controlling female sexuality. You think about the Chastity Belt in Europe. It was all about that. And there were also other forms of practices that were done on women in Saudi Arabia. uh, When a girl child was born, she was born alive. We all know that. So these are ways of controlling women and uh, trying to curb that feeling of uh, who they should be. I also believe that um, it has to do with preventing pleasure of men during sex. It is also about male sexual inadequacy of fulfilling their sexual duties to women, thus defining a way of covering the power of the clitoris and the feminine pleasure. Similarly, misinterpretation, you come to the religious realm. There are misinterpretations of religious texts resulting to justification of the continuation of the practice. For example, in my country, apart from those reasons I give, and if you look at Africa as a whole and the patterns that are there, these reasons and more are there that justify the sociocultural dimension. You talk about virginity of a woman. If you circumcise a woman, then you do infibulation. That woman is supposed to be a virgin. If you deliver and then you are lacerated again, you have to be sewn again so that you you are tight and so on. So all these reasons are there. And if you look right across the board, this is what it is. Then in the area of religion, the religious text results also the justification of the continuation of the practice. This perception has influenced families to continue to perform FGM. It is believed that women are not circumcised. Women, women who are not circumcised, who are circumcised daily. So, it is believed that if women are not circumcised, their daily supplications will not be answered, and any food they prepare will not be halal. Some religious scholars have gone to the extent of saying that the obligation is to perform FGM in, is in the Quran. Now, if you listen, about ten years ago, I was under death threat with my team when I questioned the whole issue of religion and FGM, and uh, it was said in high quarters that they cannot guarantee the lives of the activists who are going into the communities talking about FGM and Islam, because for me, when I did my um, research, my master's thesis was on FGM. Looking at deconceptualizing traditional practices, the case of female genital mutilation in the Gambia, it was a big shock to me when I realized that what I am being subjected to is not a religious obligation. So I thought that was that's where my battle will start to deal with the religious misconceptions because Gambia is about 90% Muslims. We have religious scholars who are there and they listen to them very much. They carry power. Therefore, I said this is the very structures I have to deal with in order to be able to claim the uh, freedom of women in terms of FGM. There is a general belief that FGM, uh, a woman who is not circumcised is also not clean spiritually. Therefore, FGM is made a precursor to cleanliness, and this notion is strongly held belief and sometimes results to discrimination among people who share the same faith. For example. You have the Mandinka, who is circumcised. You have Wolofs, who are very good Muslims. But because we are all Muslims, and you are not circumcised, you are not pure. So that type of discrimination among ourselves is a very common practice in many places, and our research has shown that this has been the religious divide between women, where Religion is used as a, divine, as, as a divide between women who are circumcised and those who are not And there are terminologies used like solima. In my language, they said solima. In other languages, they have in every uh, ethnic practicing group, if you check, any woman who is not circumcised has a name. So what we have been trying to do in that respect is to talk about uh, engage the religious scholars and then go back to the Quran. We are happy that the Quran was written in English and in almost many languages. And we, I cannot read Arabic, but we have some very erudite scholars like Imam Babali uh, and others who were actually guiding us using the Quran. And then uh, I read the Quran in English and found out that there was nowhere it was written. And then I started educating a team of women and men who said, well, this is a challenge. So raising that issue... It has become a very difficult uh, Who are you as a woman to read the Quran or to tell us what is in the Quran? You are not supposed to read the Quran, you are not even supposed to touch it. Because there are so many things that are attached to the Quran for women. And I felt that then how can I be a Muslim or how can women be pure in their religion and so on? So we used that and it was a very effective one, but high resistance, very dangerous because our lives were targeted. Our response to these discourses is to bring out the alternative narratives which deconstruct these myths. FGM is not a religious issue, and the practice also predates all monotheistic religions. My research showed that it predated Islam, Judaism, and all these other things. So you cannot associate it to Islam. Um, It is practiced by both Muslims and Christians. In our research, we found out that, and it is not restricted to one ethnic group. It is a cultural practice prevalent in Africa, the Middle East, and parts of the Far East. With migration, the practice can be traced in Europe, America, and China, thus manifesting in transnational dimension. There are places where this practice was done in in Europe undercover. It is only when they began tightening these things that you have what you call the uh, holiday, uh, (laughs) they, they come for holidays and then they are circumcised and then brought back. But it used to happen there. And we have done a study in Spain. Uh, they worked with the immigrant community in Spain. And we had some in depth discussions with them. And it used to happen there. We had the, the ads. It is important to know that female genital mutilation is not mentioned in the Quran, also. And it is not a religious obligation. It is also not mentioned in any authentic ahadith. Gamco Trap's engagement in the religious discourse resulted to many communities accepting to it uh, consensus. Uh, here, I, I will take you to the slides, but a little bit, I want to just bring out certain issues that FGM is abuse of the rights of the, of the child because it is, perpetuated, it is perpetrated against those who are least able to protect themselves, the little girls and young women. What is most shocking of all is that a great many of these acts are perpetrated against girls aged 10 years and under, right down to infants in their first week of life. Victims of FGM are never told that they are going to be caught Innocent children are made to believe that they are going to join other children where they will drink, dance, and dine, eat bananas, and the best of foods. A drumming and festive environment is created to prevent the public from hearing the scream of the girls when they are being cut. The consent of the children are not sought. It is important for the state as the primary beauty bearer to take responsibility to protect children where parents are failing because of diehard cultural practices. I also postulate that FGM and, uh, has health consequences. I am a victim of FGM, so I can speak it. I'm feeling it and I'm living it, so I know it. Uh, it causes all kinds of severe problems for girls and women, sexual and reproductive health, and general well-being throughout their lives. It has no health benefits. It is a harmful traditional practice and a form of violence that directly infringe upon women and children's right to physical, psychological, and social health. The practice has serious and adverse consequences for mothers and children during childbirth. And I always say this, um, Africa's human Deve- development reports or world development report, there are certain sectors, uh, sections like the health indicators will not progress significantly in countries where FGM is practiced because of the complications that birthing mothers face, the under five face, and so many other complications and also because of the cultural practice of nutris- nutritional taboos, early marriage for that matter, are all factors that contribute to the poor health indicators that we have. Yes, there is progress but very insignificant. We could have had drastic uh, uh, changes or improvement in our indicators like other countries if some of these practices stop because it, is, it, it impacts on the well-being of the woman. A WHO study found significant correlation between FGM and various types of obstetric complications in 2005. In addition to physical consequences, women who have undergone FGM also report negative psychological and emotional effects. They have the trauma also. uh, When they are birthing, they have the trauma can be reactivated in situations that bring back memories of mutilation, such as childbirth and vaginal examinations. Many women who are circumcised... Usually, if they are not taken care of, go through a lot of trauma after each delivery. And if if there is no proper care, it goes along with many things. Although the practice is widespread and gradually declining, numerous efforts at national, regional, and international levels involving a wide range of actors have have contributed to the decline. In Africa, so far, the Inter-African Committee has taken a lead to address FGM working closely with 17 affiliates in Europe and elsewhere. Through sustained advocacy and social mobilization, the Inter-African Committee has registered tremendous success in the advocacy against female genital mutilation, with support from the donors and international community, as well as relevant international NGOs. IAC has influenced policy and practice on the continent. Currently, 20 out of 28 African countries have enacted legislation to prohibit FGM. I think this is a very phenomenal progress because of the work that are being done by the national committees, uh, in close collaboration with the uh, international community, and also research institutions that are actually contributing towards the reduction and the changes that are taking place, because people are increasingly becoming aware of these myths and beliefs, and we are deconstructing them through education, awareness, and social mobilization. Most of the countries have actually uh, uh, had legislation against it, African countries have enacted legislation, for African. only eight countries are remaining and such countries are working towards it. My country is one of them, there is no law, there is no legislation. So we are working, that's what we are doing, to make sure that we reach a point where women's issues are always, always on the platform for negotiation, why are you rushing, why are you in a hurry. So you have to use different strategies to engage the patriarchal system. The global efforts... Uh, they are there also that are also creating an enabling environment, such as the worldwide ban on FGM from the decision of the African heads of states to the United Nations General Assembly resolutions? You have heard about the progress that have been made, and these things have been passed. These resolutions have been passed. And I, we have been in Italy just not long, not long ago. I was there about a month ago, where I joined Emma Bonino and the Inter Africa Committee to work on how do we move the process further. And I believe in this CSW, a lot of achievements have been done in that respect. You also have the UN SGA results on banning FGM worldwide, for example, and, and that's very important. And again, for Africa and the world as a whole, in the Gambia, the context of elimination of FGM in the Gambia is positive, really. I just want to say that if I were to um, grade Gambia in terms of formal equality, I will give them A. Because it's a country that will append its signature to any document that comes. But then when it comes to substantive equality, that is making it livable, people using it, making it effective, we have a long way to go. And this is the reason why we are engaging. So in that way, you can understand there are resistances. There is also the weakness of the system. Also, there are... uh, other factors like elite, low level of literacy and also uh, the belief that it is a religious injunction. It only requires persistence, effective advocacy work, engaging all the actors so that we reach consensus. You cannot force people on matters that they found to be uh, existing even before they were born. But what you need to do is to set the context in which it happens. So the enabling environment is there. We have the Sectoral policies, the Children's Act, the Women's Act, as well as we have also the... AU Protocol, the Gambia is a signature to the AU African Protocol to the Human Rights on the Rights of Women. Article 5 of the Protocol clearly states that elimination of FGM should be done. The Action Plan of the Ministry of Health addresses harmful traditional practices, among others. Now, in the Gambia, what I want to bring now on the listing is all written here, but I want to show you what we have been doing in terms of community-based programming which has created changes in social beliefs and behaviors that is leading to the gradual abandonment of female genital mutilation in the Gambia. GAMCO-TRAP addresses the elimination of FGM as a systems approach, working within clusters to facilitate consensus among practicing communities. I discovered the cluster approach after 20 years of advocacy with the communities, the chiefs. All along I was going, we've been doing a lot of work, and... You won't see any changes, what is happening. You leave the next week, they are telling you they are doing it behind the yard over there. So it came to a point when the chiefs realized that really I am genuine. (laughs) We are genuine as a team, and we were really spending money, and we were coming to educate the people. It was not only about female genital mutilation. We were talking about early marriage. We were talking about nutritional taboos, gender-based violence, using a holistic approach to the whole thing, and girls' education. And, of course, every parent wants to see your child prosper. You know, it came to a point where I have built that trust with them, and then they decided to call me for an extraordinary meeting. When they called us, I was scared because I thought it was like, what have we done again? Let's go and listen. Only to go for the Council of Chiefs to tell me, look, our daughter, now we know you are with us. You see, we know you've been in England for a long time, you've been traveling and all this, all whatnot, and now we know that the message you brought to us is progressive. The message you brought, we've been listening, and the women have been telling us that definitely what these people are saying is true. We have seen it. Somebody went to deliver, and she died, or she had prolonged labor, or the baby died, and so on. So they said, if you want to address this issue, don't feel that we are together. We are doing it together. They created the cluster, and they asked me to sit down, bring your pen and paper, bring your guys, let them come. We sat for one week in the village. They, each of the chiefs told me which constituency they, uh, they, are, they are governing and how these constituencies have been organized and who makes decisions. If this cluster says no, then the rest of the cluster says uh, no. If this group, this family kin says yes, everybody says yes. So they actually gave me the socio cultural setup of their various regions. And when I documented the process, I Went back to the office, we worked on it, and I found out how the decision making is being done, what are the ethnic diversities, the religious diversity, and even class and hierarchy was quite there, uh, gerontocracy was quite evident. So I realized we have actually hit the nail. When we applied the model, we found that this model is working, and since then, there were phenomenal changes. But then you have to be patient, because you have to carry on everybody. You see, in our kinship setup, Everybody has a role, everybody is important, and it's based on a particular pattern of relationship. So that relationship is what brings in the trust and what makes them come together to do, and that's where what I have broken and has given me the sort of somehow power to be able to do what we are doing as a group, and it is is working. So if you look at the systems approach, the systems approach to the elimination of FGM is community-based sensitization. And you're looking at the integrated approach where health, well-being, and education is part of traditional practices. Uh, uh, is part of it. You're dealing with traditional practices. You are also dealing with alternative employment at- activities. And right in the center is rights-based approach. Here, you are engendering all those processes with the rights-based approach. And uh, also, it informs uh, policymakers and other critical act- uh, actors for change. So this was what we uh, conceptualized out of uh, the, uh, the process. And the clusters are based on the mapping of the chiefs. For example, in Brikamabar, that is in the um, upper river region of the Gambia, central river region of the Gambia, you have Brikamabar which is consists of um, almost 28 clusters but each cluster has, uh, this is just one cluster, a bar. all these villages come to answer to this community. That's the one in the center. And when they come, that's where the headquarters is. That's where we do the training. And from each village, when we do the training, it means if we want 10 participants to come, we have 10 participants and we have a gender mix. I insist on having five men, five women. And then I insist on having the custodians, the religious scholars, women leaders, the, uh, the council of chiefs, the youth leaders. So you'll find that when all these people come, because they do things together, they intermarry, they do circumcision together. When they, make an, when they agree at the center during the training, when they reach consensus, because you do the training for three days, after the training for three days, you are gone they do their values clarification. Because when you go, when they tell you we've heard you, go, we will go and come back, they are going to consult. So when they consult and they reach consensus, you know that they will stop it. That's one thing we have discovered. So this is one, this could, you can have a big cluster, and then in Koina cluster, like the upper river region, you have uh, another sample where Koina is very remote, but that's where the power is. And it's a Sarahule enclave. Brikamapa, you have the Mandinka and the fuller. But here you have the coiner, you have most of them are sarahules and fullers, and then uh, when they come together, they marry. they do everything together. You try to work with those, clo- yeah, you might be there maybe for three months, because uh, the number of people that you want to carry uh, may not be done in one activity, because you can only, resources are not there. So for each time you go, you may want to meet only five, uh, well, sorry, 100 uh, participants or 50 at uh, uh, minimum. So that happens. When that happens and they make it, you start documenting it. Then you have, um, of course, the country situation is 1.7 million, prevalence is 76, almost all over the country. All types of FGM are around, but excision is the most common, and there is no law against uh, this thing. But there exists a Children's Act that loosely states the eradication of harmful traditional practice under Article 19. And I am told that when there was a review, That article has been removed because I work with the Child Protection Alliance and they are very much interested in that document because it was their handiwork. They realize that it has been watered down. So you can see, you have to be very um, ready to look at. Now, I want to take you through what the community perspectives are because this is very important for us to understand. You just don't go and feel that you can do change without understanding the community perspective. You have culture as a ritual and heritage that one is born into and grow up. And sometimes certain things are performed on you without you asking why, because it's just part of your life. And that's what happened in FDM. When we asked them, they said, in fact, we don't know what the reason or why it is happening. But we are told it's a religious injunction. This is what we found our ancestors doing. For the last 200 years, they've been doing it. So we've never questioned. Even the religious scholars would tell you that. Practices that people are initiated with are into, without questioning why, the expression of self-identity through ritual acts, practices and symbols with meanings and values attached. Like a woman who is not a virgin when you open marriage, you are a disgrace to your family. And a lot of things are there, and uh, there are meanings of uh, how a, uh, what they call a so-called ideal woman should look like. So these are all things that people uh, talk about, practices performed by generations and accepted as a social convention in given context. It, uh, this is what, what it is all about. So you have to understand that and know that all these things can change. As long as there is day and night, <laughs> everything can change. So these are some of the things that you have to understand first. And then the dyna- I'm taking you through the dynamics of cultural transformation. Uh, In my research and the work I'm doing with the communities, including some of the, um, Professor Chant and others, when we meet and we start discussing, a lot of things do happen when we get to the field. I thought of the dynamics of cultural transformation, looking at it from the epistemic community to emerging epistemic communities, where, you know, in a society like this, you just take a book and read or put in the newspapers or have a radio talk show, it's over. You want to find out what are your issues. You go into the internet and research. Then you have your own perspective. Where you talk about the social convention theory, where everybody agrees when there is a phenomenon, media, and newspapers is diffused in them. But in emerging epistemic communities like in Africa and elsewhere, you have consultations. Consensus, building values, clarifications, because it is based on the experience that we had in the field that we thought we should follow a scientific approach to it. And I'm trying to build up that type of body of knowledge to contribute to the whole discourse on FGM. Uh, dropping of the knife because you have to consult, you have to with consensus, building the values, building uh, consensus, building values clarification. This is the most difficult aspect here because, first and foremost, you are seen as an outsider, even though you are Mandinka, you are circumcised. And uh, it is not normal for a Mandinka woman to stand in front of such a big thing and start talking much more a fula or a Sarahulegal, you see. But the ch- norms are changing with education, awareness, and exposure. People are uh, assuming higher rims, values are changing, and therefore we are actually cross-fertilizing each other. The world is a global village, and everybody is educating his or her own child. So you expect that certain things will change if they are not in the best interest of humanity. We are not condemning our culture totally, and I want to make that very clear. African culture is very beautiful. But then there are certain practices, particularly that have these patriarchal undertones, the They need to be looked at. And address because it's not even good for the society. So those consultation you have to for, like, for example, if I am consulting the men, women are not going to be there. And normally I go with a religious scholar, <laughs> because she's a woman. So the religious scholar will come first. We will share the colour notes, we discuss, and then I allow the man to talk afterwards. I uh, uh, narrate your uh, story. I narrate this story until I get the way. So I follow that type of cultural pattern of engaging with my people. We do that in order to get the space. Now, when this space is available, that's when we come in with our discourses. And that's, it, is not, it is important to have that space. If you don't have that space, forget it. Don't bother yourself. You will not succeed. So that consultation and consensus building, the values clarification, some of them will tell us that, are you not the people that we are told uh, – the reading the Bible to us, or you are introducing Christianity to the people. You are now subverting the religion, telling us that FGM is not in the Koran. So you see, these are some of the very difficult questions that we are being told. And in a way, you have to be tolerant. So once that space is open, you do the trading and bring in the things. And using their own people, you don't bring in an outsider. What I had the first mistakes we made in the first phase of our advocacy was bringing in. I remember we have a very good colleague who did a lot of research at the MRC, who did so much work, and we had all the effects of FDM on women. And we, even in an educated environment like the Gambia College, when we brought that white lady to stand and talk about the anatomy and physiology, of the, there was resistance among students, and it was like, what? It was a big shock to me for uh, highly educated people in tertiary institutions being exposed to something like physiology and anatomy, and you are saying, no, this is our culture. So you can imagine what it is going to be like when you get to the communities. So we learned, it was not taken badly, but we reflected on our strategies. You had people who will be behind the scenes supporting you whilst you are using the information to educate your people because that cultural relevance is very important if you want to make headway or else you'll be losing all your resources. So that was very important. We did that... And we were able to uh, get those uh, consultations done, the consensus built, values clarification, and then they were listening to us because they realized that we are also circumcised. And you know, they try to test you by singing and giving you certain signs. And if you speak the language and you are able to reply to them in that song, then you've won them. And that's one thing I have been able to do for myself. I made sure (laughs) I got back to the chambers. I was not caught, but I had to go back to study the language and the words, the communication, the narratives. And then I came back and I said, yes, I can now challenge the whole system. And that is what happened, like yali You know, when they tell you that, and then you reply to them, <laughs> you know, you are just like, come, let us, and there's a challenge. So once you break that taboo, and you are able to respond, you you actually own the space, and they are actually calling you to come, let us discuss, and you begin to see the dangers of FGM. Then, at the end of the day, when you reach that consensus, a dropping of the knife is surely ensued in that region. And I I use the region. Now, here you have training, awareness, creation, and empowerment. Have you heard this news? For example, consensus building. Like, when you come to the training bit of it, you are actually creating awareness about in the epistemic community, actually, you are creating awareness. Maybe they don't know. You just write a paper, put something, you are sensitizing them, you are giving them information, then they get to know. Now, in that process, you have to empower the people to actually stand up to the patriarchal system and also to understand that they are part of those who actually propagate it so that we, uh, they are able to go. So you are really going through a system of empowerment through consentization, raising up their their awareness in many ways, through songs and so on. Consensus being, have you heard the news? What are you going to do? You know, values clarification is about religion. What did my religion say? Poverty, if I stop, what will I live on? These are some of the things, are very hard questions, the circumcises, the custodians of the practice do ask. Some social pressure, if I stop, what will the community say? Cluster consensus. I want my cluster to know that I am ready to stop. So, you know, there you are bringing them together to ensure that you are not alone in this fight. You are not alone, and this is something that has to deal with the whole community, the whole cluster. That's why the cluster approach was a big inroad, a breakthrough for me in discovering the African social-cultural patterns of governance. And this is on making. It was interesting, and I am still looking into the whole process with the chiefs and then we are beginning to see some of the web, uh, we are finalizing the document, looking at how different regions are interrelated and the genealogy of the circumcisers in terms of how it has started and which, through which, uh, which, 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 which kinship. Now most of what we have done has resulted to the first DOK after many years Trap was founded since 1984, and it was only in 2007 that we were able to get a result. I grew up in the second wave of young activists. Just like we're talking about Girls Not Bright initiative, young people have to take responsibility. And I grew up looking at what was going on, and then I grew through the system. I looked at it, and I thought, this is my contribution, or our contribution towards... uh, Uh, The Gambia and in Africa as a whole If we really want to make a positive impact In real change for women Now DOK informed the empowered circumcisers Displaying the traditional tools to end FGM And to serve as leaders in their communities That's why you have to empower them To be able to stand up and take that responsibility Because in our studies We found that they have about eight Roles and responsibilities Which were very critical for human existence Except one which was the cutting. They are responsible for as, traditional birth attendants. They also are involved in organizing community work when it comes to the gendered labor and so on. They also, during marriages, they are, they are with the people, they organize, they are leaders of women when it comes to issues of community work. They also are responsible when you say marriage and you want to have an, inter, an, an emissary, a female emissary. They also play that role, and during naming ceremonies, they are. If you have some occasions, they come to give you the support and organize a lot of things. So all those things, when we gender interrogated them, we were found them very useful. So what we did was, let's. Yeah, this is the area that we want to deal with, and during that process, we try to give them power to let them maintain their powers, because most of the time. They are coming from the lowest rung of the society, but this is changing when you came to the economics of the clitoris. When you look at how much cutting the clitoris is bringing to them, the thing has started changing, and that is going to be that. That's another area we are thinking of publishing a work on in terms of the the economics of the clitoris uh, with regards to FGM. So when uh, you bring them out, they make a public display. They're promoting the beauty of culture without cutting the bodies of children. This process serves as a way of promoting positive culture while ending harmful one. Pictures show protected children. All these girls at that time were not circumcised. Some of them are married and in uh, different parts of the, uh, of the world now. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, I don't see someone from the UK here today because uh, we are trying to organize them to uh, actually lead the campaign and work with partners around here. Then in 2009, it takes three years before you can get a public declaration because you have to go through the structures. When you look at the regions, you divide them into clusters the constituencies, the different targets and so on, and each cluster having the number of people, the type of intervention because we apply a multimedia modular package which consists of seven modules and you have to complete that module for you to be able to get the results that you want. It's not just coming here, I am putting this and that's what's going to happen. No, you have to take a listen. Uh, 2009, leading the process actually you have to be with the people you have to drink with them, dance with them, dine with them sleep with them and do everything with them and identify yourself you cannot come and tell people to stop when you are not part of them or you are not manifesting any identity I am completely different when you meet me in the Gambia I (laughs) am always with the people of country Uh, I am a point of reference with my team we do a lot of work, and because it, is an, it involves a lot of intensive work, we work a lot. It has come to a point where they thought I am a political threat. Why? Because of the uh, increasing grassroots support I have garnered over the years with the work I'm doing, and because I am always there with them. Uh, we are working together day in, day out, and when I go there, I am now retired from uh, uh, from my institute. I, was, I founded a gender unit in Gambia, that is under the Management Development Institute, and I worked in it for 15 years. After that, I was threatened, and I decided to retire prematurely, and then went to work in the organization. I, be, I was a volunteer in, I co-founded it, and. Uh, I'm with the people I thought I want to leave the classroom the lecture hall for a while although I supervise few master students in the University of the Gambia but I thought change is desired where where the people are where we have to let them know their rights where we feel they ought to know why they are changing and demand for those rights but not to tell them this is what we have done, and without them knowing the implication. So, my, our work is grounded in the right in rights education. Then you come to the 2009 Public Declaration. Chiefs have a very critical role to play. These are more important than even politicians because these are people who are traditional custodians of their region, of their people. Of the, these are people who are identified by their own people and carry the willed power. They wield power. Uh, once they take leadership in the communities and stand up to talk about an issue, it shall be done. So this is how powerful they are. So for me, my, there is a lot of partnership with the chiefs, the traditional structures, women leaders, circumcisers, youth leaders, and I spent almost every month, I spend about 15 days working with them uh, on the ground, especially when I have a project uh, going on. That's the, minister, the UNFPA director, Ruben Boj, who came to the dropping of the knife with the chiefs. They are, certificate, they are certificated because you have to give them incentives and motivate them. I, as I said, African traditional knowledge, African cultural practices – have to be ingrained into epistemic theory, and not only oral culture. I want, to put, I want to document a lot based on my experience in the field, and I'm trying to do a lot of things develop uh, with my team to ensure that we make it, we prepare it as a document for universities, institutions, and for NGO work uh, when the resources are available. But we are doing what we can by documenting the process and then Testing it and testing it to see how, uh, uh, what it is all about. DECO 2011 was also a very phenomenal one. Since the discovery of the cluster approach, it's just a matter of resources. If I have the resources for every region, three, by the end of the three years, you are sure to get the results. We have communities uh, coming out. These are the chiefs. Circumcisers smiling when they discovered what the new, when they got the, the alternative information. And they were joining their colleagues. It's a moment of joy, a moment of appreciation that what, is, what seems to be impossible, which is shrouded in the culture of silence and resistance, what is a taboo in our culture, is now brought to the development platform when everybody, and the change is happening. It is not impossible. It is possible. If you are dedicated, you have the resources, you have the right intervention strategies, you understand the people, you can make a change. There is nothing impossible. That's what I have discovered in the fight against female genital mutilation. But there are challenges because I, we were imprisoned. Not imprisoned, we were remind, remanded <laughs> because we won the case. It was a bit to silence us. Uh, because of the impact we were making in the communities and the rights discourses that we were introducing to the communities to stand up for their rights, to raise issues, and uh, push their agency that has resulted to why, what do the women want again. Uh, is it only about this or is it about power? So these were some of the reasons why we went to the prison the leading, leading the campaign, the men played a very critical role because in our societies you have to understand the architecture of your environment. It's a male-dominated society, highly patriarchal. We have to be there. We, are, we all belong, but in different ways and in different power dynamics. You have to recognize that. But how do you engage to subvert or to create the space or to bring in the agency of women in such a structure. You have to lead, give people to lead for you to get this space in order for you to address that inequality. So men have been very, very critical in this uh, work and uh, we've been working with women leaders who actually were telling us the dynamics within the community and the men, when they realized what was some, because some at the beginning they were saying how can we question our own religion? So our advocacy has actually opened a Pandora box of knowledge for the um, for, for everybody to realise, even the religious scholars, the Imams, the so called Imams, realize that they accepted this without looking at the Quran. So it has actually created that awareness and consciousness of the people to be able to go back to the Quran and read. And I am telling you, those who are honest enough and were modest enough would tell me, thank you very much. And they will stand up and take a stance. That's where, when the change started coming because you need to empower the people to get the right information to stand up for their rights. Uh, the children, these children were not circumcised. During the three years we were working and as, they are, as changes are taking place, what we do, we tell our community-based facilitators. We have community-based facilitators who have been trained on social mobilization and advocacy. Thank you. And advocacy. And during that process... They live in the communities. We, don't, we, we, we have our headquarters, but they are the ones who actually do the grassroots activism. When they are trained and certificated, they give us on a weekly basis reports and so on, especially during the peak period when FGM is taking place. So where, whenever children are protected, we try to document it, and the parents also come in to let us know. Now, this is one of the symbolic significance of the dropping of the knife because you have to... They were coming to bring in their knives and all the things that they use for cutting the girls, which was really uh, very uh, uh, interesting. They are leading the campaign also. You have women leaders. These are people coming from Norway. We have the who is also leading a campaign there in Norway. These are women politicians. You have UNFPA... Uh, representatives working, the gender focal points and also you are the lead circumcised, the wife of the chief who are in solidarity with the process and all came out to celebrate the uh, the
0: you see, now the reality I think you just click on it let me just click on it eh? I think you just click on it this is the reality I want you to understand
1: I wanted you to uh, take a look at this because this is the reality we are facing on a daily basis. A lot of people try to trivialize the practice. They try to say, well, it's their culture. We are not supposed to talk about it. It goes beyond this even but I thought for us to engage, you need to know what it is all about. It's not about exposing the negative aspect of African culture. It is about acknowledging that there are problems in all cultures, but in different ways. Once that part of the child is removed, forever and ever, it will never be. And that child lives with that pain, with that consequence, and that inadequacy till death. Do we want this? Is this what we want for, 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 for our children? No. So just give me a few minutes to show you the impact of what is happening after, excuse me, after, um, sorry. From current
0: slide.
1: From current slide, yes. What, what is happening? Mm-hmm. The effects. These are babies. It is done on babies, very young babies, when they are circumcised. The whole place is mutilated. Some of some people will tell you circumcision. I am discrediting circumcision. It's not circumcision. It's men who are circumcised. Circumcision is cutting around. For women, it is mutilation. You have heard about different types of female genital mutilation, clitoridectomy, infibulation. You have had excision. And then you had a fourth one depending on the cultural context. And this has been all documented by the WHO. The WHO has done intensive research technically and have come to accept the terminology, female genital mutilation. So it is not about a derogatory derogatory term. It is a scientifically proven term that is based on research and evidence-based research for that matter. So you'll find that this is a baby who was circumcised, complicated, it went to the hospital. It was in the bush. It came to the doctor and they had to intervene, a child at that age. And this is the normal woman in the center there, the creation of God, the beauty of woman, during the the, uh, delivery. Can you imagine that part which is supposed to be spongy, lovely, nice, and attractive? and makes you what a woman she's supposed to be. After it has been done, mm-hmm. that is the small hole that is left, the minor, the labia majora, the minora, and all the erogenous zones are removed, leading to a very tight hole, when only to allow for penetration or urination sometimes. Now, if you happen to marry, and you are going to deliver, because of the tightness of the vagina, you will find that that part is during labor, that baby cannot come out, which has resulted, luckily she is, uh, uh, here she came, she delivered, and she was lucky, the baby had a very low Apgar score, but the baby survived. Here, in the rural community, it was not possible. When they arrived, the baby is dead. This is what gives the poor indicators of our health indicators in Africa. Coupled up with the health system not having enough medicines or other equipment to respond to serious emergencies, thinking about the rural areas where you have the difficult terrain and all other forms of difficulties, it is a problem. These are the circumcises who were empowered to stop, and there are very big narratives here. They are very uh, important narratives to give, protecting the future, We are moving on, despite the fact that this is what happened to our girls. There is hope because I'm a victim. And today I am here to say my three daughters have not been circumcised and many, many others are like me. And I'm sure with the future generation and the changes that are taking place in my country, it will be a thing of the past. But it requires a lot of effort and courage and resources to engage over the years, you have seen what had happened. We had uh, Upper river region, quite a number. It's a very impressive progress that I am seeing in the Gambia. Even though there is no law yet in place, the people are empowered to say no. And in change, when you're making change, what is important, the laws are there. They are very important because it's about human rights, about formal equality, and about fundamental freedoms. So everybody should enjoy that enabling environment for that to happen. But when the people themselves, Take the initiative because they are empowered. They've got the right information. They can turn the tides to their own advantage. And that is what we are beginning to see in this country. And I just want to tell you that uh, oh. bridging the gap. <laughs> 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 bridging the bridge is not a one-person show, neither a few people show. It requires a lot of hands and a lot of people. And I think today I am here because of the fact that I've been working with Sylvia Chant over the years. She came, she saw what we were doing, and she believed in the work and decided to join us And as a scholar. Of course, we have been able to work with her, and really she's helped us to do some, little, some works with her in order to come up with what we want to call real uh, material for the work we are doing in the Gambia. You can see we are all both tired because we were coming from the field we came and I said, I said, Sylvia, please come. She was just sitting on the, the, right in our office. And then we, the guy said, let us take these pictures. So tired because she, when she goes there, you don't think she's a professor. And when I tell people she's a professor, they say, ha! Huh? <laughs> because of the way we, because of the way even myself, the, the way we, we, we work with the people in the communities. So this is what we need when we're talking about bridging the gap. We don't just come and live in ivory towers and be in the air-conditioned office. Yes, it's important where you want to do about conceptualization, theorizing, but where do you put theory into practice? It's reaching out to the people and pushing, putting those things, testing those theories or practicalizing them and learning from those to feed into your own work to be able to know that things are going And Indeed, what we are doing is real uh, development work. Uh, another student of uh, Sylvia's, who did her thesis in, on FGM, and we were there together, Carol, supporting our work. Now she comes to my office, we work together, uh, she supports the process. And I'm just happy to tell you that this year's dropping of the knife, which is going to be the fourth and one of the biggest ever, because it's a culmination of almost all the dropping of the knives, where the people are coming to meet to make a public declaration of over 2,000 people, Sylvia and Carol are going to be awarded. And Chris. And Chris. <laughs> and Chris. <laughs> yes. They are going to be awarded uh, a, a certificate of recognition for supporting the work we are doing and being with us in the field of development. We are very, very grateful for that. And I just want to say that... Uh, <coughs> Don't. We have broken the <laughs> culture of uh, what they call using in the feminist debates... When people want to discredit the work that women are doing, they say they are influenced by the West. They are influenced by the West. They give them money. It's not about the money. It is about the commonalities, the specificities, and the differences that we all have, that we are coming to see how we want to move the process. And uh, you can be sure that we are coming up with different volumes of the work that we have been doing, me and my organization including Sylvia and others who may be interested and I just want to recognize the fact that some of our Gambian scholars who are in the diaspora are actually encouraging us um, to bring out ourselves and to share our experience and expertise and I want to take the opportunity to appreciate Professor Sen and Sise and the others who actually edited the book, the newly uh, published book that we have. We, we have a chapter <laughs> from uh, Cynthia. Uh, we are thinking of, going, uh, you know, what do we call it, uh, inaugurating it in the Gambia. We don't know <laughs> whether we can do it or not, but that's what we are thinking of doing. And to all of you who have, but the most important thing here I want to say is that invest your resources on projects that bring in change, positive change. The fight against female genital mutilation, early marriage, nutritional taboos, girls' education, gender-based violence, women's rights work are poorly resourced, very poorly resourced. You have the magical 10,000, magical 20,000. It's not in millions. But when you look at male-dominated social organizations, it's millions that go, and yet... We are making the impact. So I urge whoever is interested in the fight against FGM. I'm very happy that uh, Cameron, President Cameron,
2: mm. I don't know. Uh, Prime so, Minister Cameron, Prime Minister
1: Cameron, has uh, pledged 35 million pounds on the fight against female genital mutilation or gender-based violence. And I hope that the uh, people working in Africa, particularly women's rights organisations, will be uh, remembered because we face challenges. Real challenges in the field uh, for very limited resources that we have. We have already created that impact. We have already created that ethos in them, and they are calling us. But resources are sometimes a challenge to be able to respond to all these demands. And I want to take the opportunity to say thank you very much. There is hope at the end of the tunnel, and I'm very proud to be here again. <laughs> one thing I want to say, I'm inviting you to the fourth dropping of the knife. If you look at that, I'm already, we've already sent it to the internet. It's already gone. Uh, we, without if There's nothing absolutely in my country. By the 13th of April, we hope to um, have this big one at Wasu. Wasu is a historic center, a very cultural center, uh, region, where FGM used to be like no-go zone. I dare not go there. But because of the model that we have developed, we were able to work with these people for the last three years, uh, and we are happy to say that uh, the Feminist Trust Fund contributed to that. United Nations Funds for Population Activities contributed to that. Equality Now is a partner to Gampo Trap, a long-term partner and have been supporting. And then at one time, we benefited from comic relief. So we hope that uh, we will uh, we will have this. All these are circumcisers. There are thirty in numbers who are going to drop the knife. With three hundred and thirty-six communities, the, the regional chiefs is going to be a real public declaration, and that's when Sylvia and others. I hope to see to you there. there. So that's <laughs> the whole thing. You go to visit our website. You will see it. Uh, you, you, Find it. Yes, there's
0: very few other websites with the name Gamco Trap, so you're you're kind of fairly secure on that front. Isotope, thank you very much indeed for <laughs> a wonderful talk. We have. We have approximately 15 minutes. It's, it's gone. It's a little bit like one of my lectures, actually, I do, because I never finish in time. Uh, but uh, we have about 15 minutes for questions. There will be people with roving um, um, microphones. Uh, when you ask your question, we may take about two or three at one go. Could you kindly say who you are and your affiliation? Thank you very much. I think there's one there..
2: Oh, hello. The name is Job. I am a member of the Senegambian Human Rights Defense League in London. And for us, this is a human rights issue. Um, We've had a very brilliant expose of um, FGM, a very horrendous uh, archaic practice uh, that we've seen visually this evening. Uh, The practice of FGM, as far as I'm concerned, is, is is a culture of domination a culture of the subjugation of women, a culture of control, basically a culture of bestiality, if you like. It's about patriarchal supremacy, despite what religious charlatans and traditional bigots may may try to say to to justify it. Uh, I now say to Dr. Chure, no doubt FGM is mainly about women. Surely as, as dads, as uncles, as brothers, men must be affected somehow. Mm -hmm. And I would want to comment on that briefly. I thought I'd put two questions together very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, FGM sitting alongside the lowly position of women in matrimony, the lowly position of women in the workplace, the lowly position of women with regards to inheritance, owning wealth, etc. Would she agree that in fact FGM must be tackled from a wider perspective from the overhaul and transformation? of African society not to be able to sustain whatever is gained in terms of the fight against FGM. Because this is about equality, it's about, uh, it's about rights. Thank okay. you. Thank
0: you very much.
3: Um, um, thank you very much for coming tonight, and thank you for the um, inspirational presentation. My name is Paulina, and I'm a master's student at the Gender Institute here at the LSE. Um, and I have two questions for you. And my first question is, you mentioned that FGM is very much a practice um, carried out because of male supremacy and patriarchal uh, system and it's mainly to do with the control of female sexuality so my question to you is how do you go about uh, persuading or reaching out to men who believe that women's sexuality should be light, rightly controlled that, that, who believe that women don't have the right to enjoy sex and don't have the right to have sexual desire so how do you go about uh, reaching out to these men um, and how do you engage them in this discussion And my second question to you is, um, some post-colonial theorists, feminist theorists, believe, like you said, that um, when you have a transnational alliance of feminists, that basically when we talk about trying to combat FGM, it's the Western feminists who are trying to impose their colonial um, ideas and values. And I'm very much for creating a global feminist movement and transnational alliances to combat practices like this. But how do you go about um, responding to post post-colonial theorists who might believe this.
4: Thank you very much for coming. again. Oh, yeah, we got another question here. Alice. Thank you. Um, Dr. Torrey, thank you for a wonderful talk. Um, it's a real pleasure for me to see you in the flesh, having read your work, and thank you. Um, I wanted to ask a question about what kind of international support is most helpful. Uh, you mentioned financial resources, the evident need. You mentioned your relationship with uh, Professor Chant. But I wondered if you could reflect, perhaps, on the perceived value of international conferences, like the recent CSW, which I believe you attended, with a number of other um, people, including my colleagues at ActionAid, um, um So what is the value of these international conferences? It's in terms of the ideas, the strategies that you meet from other delegates, or into the networking. Um, yeah, so uh, the second question is... Um, So one, what is the value of international conferences? The second question is what kind of international development targets might be helpful? So for example, if FGM, if violence against women was part of a 2015 international development target, would that be helpful or would that somehow hinder your local initiatives because it would be tied with a sort of Western imperialist brush perhaps? Uh, respond, you know, related to your point. Thank you very much.
0: We'll take one more question from Professor Tony Barnett up, 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 up there, and then we'll, we'll have another round. There should be time.
4: I'm Tony Barnett from L- the LSE in the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, I said two. Uh, two one, one very specific question and one general question. How do you know how long after your dropping of the knife campaigns the effect actually lasts? And presumably in answering that you might want to say something about the livelihood um, yes. implications of, for the circumcisers. my second question is very specific if a woman of 25 who had not been circumcised were to be marrying a man who, whose family and tradition required it would it be likely that she would have to undergo this process
0: Okay, thank you very much indeed. Answers, please. Yeah,
1: thank you very much. I think uh, these are
0: very good questions, I will try to respond to them. Um, We need, you know, fairly briefly because I would like to take another round. Yes, I think think,
1: uh, what you have talked about in terms of trying to give a sort of description of the situation. Of FGM and patriarchy Is quite clear It's about male supremacy over female sexuality And how it is shaped Within a given context That is expected of that context And I think these are some of the values That we have to deal with When we're dealing with our context specificities um, It is If you listen to my presentation I talked about the fact that It is there, it's a male culture But it is being uh, Women are patriarchal gatekeepers you have to understand it. And because of that, men do not have to do much work because of the socialization process in which we were brought up in and how religion has been shaped. You know that religion is a male discourse to a great extent because most of the interpreters, the misinterpretations and all these things come from the so-called men scholars. And this is what is happening with FGM. And therefore, they are very critical in having to bring them to actually re-educate themselves and the population at large because they carry power, they are people to be contended with. So what we try to do is to bring in scholars who are within this, uh, who are uh, on our side, then we go into a sort of education with them and then they come out to speak to the people because a male scholar who knows nothing is more acceptable than a woman who knows the whole Quran and so on in our context. So what we try to do is to use them as entry points and I don't go to any community without trying to find out the star imam there who I try to buy in, who also I train into uh, feminism somehow, to be able to come in and say, yes, I am doing women's rights work, I'm doing all these things. And we are very lucky. We have always had them. We have one of the greatest feminists, male, is imam, who is imam Babali, who is currently... Uh, uh, Disappeared We don't know where he is And I pray that he will be safe You know, Who has been out And very well spoken To talk about Islam and women's rights So there are many of that type now we are getting And that's why we are getting this wind of change When it comes And there are models that we deal with on religion And we try to use the, the Quran and the authentic hadith So for me these are my areas of reference I don't go into any other thing You want to bring me interpretation I tell you I don't belong to any school of thought because the schools of thought have their own interpretation of female sexuality in certain contexts. So I go by the phrase, when you are having difficulties, go back to the Quran, and I go back to the Quran, and then to the authentic Hadith. So that way, we have been winning the game, because you have to understand the politics into it that, that matters also. Then the other thing, um, the lowly positions of women have always been there with or without FGM. If you go even to non practicing uh, communities, Women have always been seen as second-class citizens in our societies, and we need to deconstruct that. We need to change that status quo, and we are doing a lot of that through awareness and sensitization and education. Things are changing, but slowly. How do you go about reaching uh, about men, and how do you engage them? It's through awareness, creation, sensitization, and education. Yes, we have always been uh, casualties of this Western feminism versus third world feminism, and uh, like you said, the issues we discuss is all about oppression, suppression of women, and in different contexts. In my context, I'm dealing with the issues that oppress women, and I share it with Western feminists, and also I get insights from Western feminists by their discourses, and my discourses we put together, and we learn. You have to start from somewhere. It's only a way of trying to uh, trivialize the women's rights movement, by trying to create that divide, that dichotomy. And we must uh, uh, refuse that because women all over the world, in one way or the other, if you look at all contexts, have been suppressed in one, at one time or the other or are still being suppressed. And when you look at the context specificities, you see them quite blatantly. So what we do as African feminists or scholars in our own context, has to do with the with our realities, the lived realities of the people, and if it cross boundaries like the FGM debate, where immigration is causing the uh, has crossed the uh, created that cross there is racial marriages and so on. So where does Western and. Uh, third world feminism come from we all have our issues but the issue is we have a cross cutting issue that is the suppression oppression of women and we have to raise our voice to create the agency of women all over the world so for me that does not push me I have something to answer I'm dealing with FDM. is it done in Finland no the, the Finnish are dealing with something else but we are all together this is what we have to understand you have, the, Of course you have some critical uh, literature on that and if you read it you will see uh, sometimes it is
0: a way of trying to divide us but we must I then, I'm going to stop you there I'm going to stop you there just to see because I think there's some other burning questions we're going to take two more questions from the, the floor there's already three hands up maybe Can let I'm, me
1: just finish this okay. yes. right. <laughs> uh, we have the uh, MDGs you know the MDGs are global targets and we have to understand that it's not a western concept When you talk about the Millennium Development Goal, this is a United Nations – these are targets coming from the United Nations that everybody shares. When you talk about health, education, poverty, violence against women and so on, everybody has a role to play there. And what we try to do is to put – like I'm saying that by 2020, FGM should come to an end if we have the right resources to intervene because the trends are very positive. But uh, the target is 2015 some targets may be realistic for some context and others uh, may not be and how do we want people how do we want the support well we can have both financial and technical support sometimes it's not always the money but we need the, to, to come together to share strategies to work together, give each other support like uh, we, we, uh, we shared a lot of Strategies, but there were some technical information I got from her. She also came to see what we are doing, and we tried to put it together, and so on. So no matter how small it is, it's something. But, of course, resources are needed to reach out to the people, because in our countries, women's right work is not given the right attention it requires. So you need international support to be able to do what you are doing. And, indeed, I want to say thank you to all the donors who have been giving me support in my work, whether I mention them or not. That is why we are existing. I don't get funds from my government.
0: Okay, I'm going to take three more questions, but there will be a very brief response because um, we have to respect them. Can I take from this gentleman here first? Then you, then you.
5: Hi, my name is uh, Danny D. I'm a student of custom and human rights. Uh, Dr. Asatu, you are really a remarkable lady. Um, You're such a wonderful person. you are already a beautiful candle, but um, I just wanted to suggest something. Uh, you had the intellectual um, acumen and acquired all the knowledge. You had the work experience. You know, you understand your society and uh, beyond, even uh, across the continent. Uh, would you consider to be a leader of your country, and you got my support and can, can can <laughs> <laughs> Because) it's a power issue now you can do uh, a lot of things but you can do much more bigger things um, change the curriculum affect uh, really have. can you work at it that um, build a network with, uh, across the African um, okay. uh, continent I'm, I'm with really, the ladies I'm, I'm really thank sorry you. But, uh,
0: but thank you very much for your question uh, we've got these two others and then there was a, 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 a lady in the front row here and I'm really really sorry but that's all the questions we can take where was the second question here and then, yeah, sorry, yeah. Please.
6: Um, my name is Lola Tenumbo. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a lawyer and I practice asylum and um, human rights cases. Uh, I've done a few West African FGM cases and I recently did um, a Gambia FGM mm-hmm. case and I used to report on Professor Chan's report and uh, Professor Barnett, Tony Barnett. Um, at first the appeal was dismissed and yes. on two grounds one, that there must be somewhere safe in Gambia that the mother can take the baby and then the second um, ground was that because of your work things are changing in Gambia because um, the, the little girl, she's I think about 15 months old and the judge, the first judge said um, things are changing in Gambia and the girl will not be circumcised until she's about 10 so she can go back um, thankfully uh, the report of the three of you helped and we won the appeal at the upper tribunal oh. two weeks ago now my question is you've um, indicated progress which I'm very happy about. Do you think things would change that soon?
0: Okay. We have a third question. Sorry, we have we could only take third question here and then fourth question here. Very very quickly. Uh, don't forget we have a reception, so you can um, approach ISA to and ask her in person uh, over a, over a drink and a nibble um, after after this uh, comes to an end. Okay, yes. I'll
4: make it quick. My name is Khalifa Bojang from Action Aid, Gambia. Basically, you did mention about the rights-based approach to development work, in, in, with regards to trying to tackle the issue of FGM. What other alternatives are being put in place? To be, whether it's income-generating activities mm-hmm. or engaging with traditional practitioners, what is there? What is there for these women to actually another alternative source? That's please
0: my question. Yeah, okay, thank you. And then we have one last question down here. Thank you.
7: Um, My name is Sainabu. I'm a research student at UCL and a Gambian who's had the opportunity to work for UNICEF on issues of FGM. Um, as an M&E officer, so monitoring evaluation. So my question is regarding the level of impact. At the beginning of your presentation, you mentioned the mix, the multiple indicator cluster 3, which is one of the most extensive surveys that's done in GAM in terms of health and child protection, areas to do with women and children in the country. Um, I had opportunity to work on the Mix 4 project, And based on what I've learnt, I know that the findings have been embargoed by the government because Mm -hmm. there's issues in terms of um, child labour that Mm -hmm. they did not want published, so they have to go and remove those. So what are you comparing your level of impact to, if you've used the mix three to start with? How... what tools or what surveys are you using to be able to see the level of impact you have in FGM in the Gambia?
1: Okay. Thank you. Let me just start with the last one. I think uh, the issue of FGM has to be understood from the point of view of its quantitative numerical numbers of people who are circumcised uh, compared to the qualitative dimensions. Uh, At the moment, and I have been contending on that issue, that Surveys that are counting on the impact of FGM in terms of reduction for me, I am not discrediting it, but I think the approach is not the most appropriate methodology that they are applying because, you know, this is a – from 2007 to date, you can go into a survey to actually see the quantitative number of children who have not been circumcised since the dropping of the knife. That's a frame of reference. But before then, having a general survey you'll find that children born from zero to ten are all circumcised in most cases before then. So I have questions with those surveys, but so far, <laughs> these are institutions who have been involved in surveys, but this is my own from my own understanding of what i 'm doing on the ground. So what we are trying to do now is that i 'm going to that's the task i 'm going to work with on with Professor Chant if we can have a survey based on the first public declaration to date that is after the to see. and I was thinking that we need a grace of 10 years to be able to establish that but perceptions and practices are change, have stopped are changing because of the public de- the number of communities that are saying they have stopped when you are ready to do that type of survey you can apply it on those communities but before then any survey that goes out to put it in that demographic listing is just you are capturing the same old story So that change cannot be there. And number two, also, somebody was talking, congratulations, Lola, Lola, that I wanted to say that we don't have a law against female genital mutilation in The Gambia, and they are not stopping people from, but only those communities that have had public declarations who are protecting their communities, and we are moving gradually. We've not covered the whole country. So your area was quite clear that that child was uh, at a risk, and I think that should be considered. That has to be considered, and our organization is open for any communication that has to deal with those things. And even where there is a public declaration, you have to take a year to monitor and see whether people are complying. So for the first year of the declaration, our job is to do intensive monitoring. Uh, Khalifa, I think you have raised a very important issue here. We are having an alternative employment opportunity for circumcisers. We've done the research. And the reason why circumcisers are stopping, as I said, there is a dynamic. I wrote a paper, and I hope you will share, the paper will be shared. You will see what we are talking about, how the trends are changing. There is an alternative employment opportunity, it is one off grant where we give to the circumcised when they are empowered and they identify the type of alternative they want to do in their community because we don't have the resources to take them to Banjul or to take them to somewhere else. When we leave, then they revert back to the practice. So what we are trying to do is to recognize the fact that these are human beings and there is feminization of poverty. And we are using a feminist approach to give them an alternative because it's a job that they were doing for people that was considered good and sacred. So you have to understand that. So if we are going to change that whole discourse, we have to empower them and then give them something they can fall back into to address their own poverty because they are the poorest of the poor. Uh,
0: Of course... I see last word or are you... My last word. That's my last word. Last word. Last word. Good. um, I think that's a very, very uh, apposite last word um, and I'm sure there'll be many more words now. You're more than welcome, everybody, to join us at the Gender Institute Reception. Which is uh, at the fifth floor, Columbia House, um, just round the corner. Just come out of the building, exit left, just follow the crowd, really. But first, before you start departing to the reception, can we please give Isatou a round of applause for an amazing talk?